Both God and Samuel lamented over Saul's rejection as king. And I want to consider just for a moment as we begin their respective responses. Earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 13, Saul had failed to wait for Samuel to make a sacrifice prior to engaging in battle against the Philistines. And in response to that disobedience, God had informed Saul that his family would not serve as perpetual monarchs in Israel, that the monarchy would end with him, his children would not inherit it. So at that point in the story, it was Saul's children who were to be most affected by his failure. He remained king, but his children would not inherit the throne. Then in the passage we discussed last week, Saul again failed to obey God's command, this time with respect to the Amalekites. In response to that failure, God went even a step further. Now not only Saul's line, but Saul himself was rejected as king. And this introduces a prophetic pronouncement that the authority in Israel would be shifted from Saul to another person during Saul's lifetime and not simply during the lifetime of his children. After the second pronouncement, Samuel is said to have grieved and God is said to have been sorry. 1 Samuel 15, 34 to 35 recounts the following. It says, Then Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord was sorry that he had made Saul king over Israel. With respect to Samuel, the Hebrew word translated grieved is telling. It's most commonly used in the First Testament to describe mourning over the dead. It's most often done as part of funeral services, and that seems fitting since Paul's rejection was a kind of death. With respect to God, the Hebrew word translated was sorry is the same word translated earlier in verse 11 as regret. In that passage, it says, I regret that I made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. It's the same word. It's the word Naham. The prophet's Nahum comes from that word. Prior to these events in 1 Samuel, the word's been used of God on two other occasions. In Exodus, it was translated into English as changed his mind, and it refers to the incident in which God determined to destroy the Israelites because of their sin in worshiping the golden calf on the foothills of Mount Sinai. But then Moses prayed and interceded for the people, and God, the same word, changed his mind and did not destroy them. In Genesis, it's the same word that's used to describe God's regret in having created humankind on the earth prior to his decision to destroy the entire earth with a flood. In that context, the text of Genesis says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord, this is the same word, was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I've created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air. Here's the word again. For I am sorry that I have made them. So in short, the responses both of Samuel and of, God's, of God to, Sam, to Saul's failure, they're laden with these images of death and destruction. The last time God said this, twice before, he wanted to destroy Israel, he did destroy the earth. Samuel's is a lament over death, usually reserved for funerals. It's very dark. 
very dark. We're getting set up for Saul to have something cataclysmic happen to him. The intention of the closing verses in 1 Samuel 15, therefore, is not to inform us that both God and Samuel were sad. That's not what it's about. We're meant to understand that Saul was soon to be replaced, possibly killed. So there's something looming there. And that explains why Samuel is so on edge. That explains why. And so it's not surprising that 1 Samuel chapter 16 begins with the following command of God. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now Saul had been from the tribe of Benjamin, which had become a disgraced tribe during the period of the judges. In choosing Saul as Israel's first king, God had chosen a humble tribe and a meek individual to lead them. We talked about the significance of those decisions earlier in the series. God's next choice for king was more in line with expectations. God told Samuel to go to Bethlehem, which was a small town, but in a very important tribe, in the tribe of Judah. Unlike the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Judah was significant in Israel. In the period of the judges, both Judah and another tribe named Ephraim arose as the most powerful of the tribes. Even during the original conquest of Canaan, these tribes had been significant. Judah had been led by Caleb, and Ephraim had been led by Joshua. Joshua and Caleb were the only two of the twelve spies, if you recall, from Numbers who had believed God could take the people into the land of Canaan at the beginning, and they were the only two of their generation who survived to see that promise fulfilled in the conquest of the land. So these are significant tribes. A visit of Samuel to either of those tribes, (laughs) Ephraim or Judah, would certainly have caught Saul's attention, especially when he had just been warned he was going to be replaced. This concerned Samuel, and so Samuel responded, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. Before he can get there to anoint a king, right? Samuel's indicating Saul is watching me. So God permitted Samuel to go to Bethlehem under the public pretenses of having a fellowship meal with the people, which he had done before. We've seen it in the story before. So as Samuel arrived in Bethlehem, it becomes clear that it wasn't just Samuel who was worried about where Samuel went. The people were concerned about that too. The inhabitants of Bethlehem were afraid when they saw Samuel coming. Now, it's hard to know for sure why they were afraid. Maybe Samuel's reputation as a prophet preceded him and they were simply showing him proper respect. But I think it's more likely that they heard of Saul's rejection and they knew that wherever Samuel went, Saul was not, it was going to follow. And so I think they were terrified that Samuel was coming to their town. (laughs) Even so, they welcomed Samuel's intention to make a sacrifice and share a fellowship meal with the people. And as Jesse's sons came to the feast, Samuel assumed that God would choose according to the conventions of leadership in Israel. Saul, after all, might have been from a disgraced tribe, but he was tall, he was handsome, and he was a firstborn son of his father. So naturally, Jesse's firstborn son would be God's choice as well. But God did not choose Jesse's firstborn son. Instead, God said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, 
but the Lord looks on the heart. As the procession continued, God did not choose Jesse's secondborn either, nor did he choose any of the succeeding five. God passed on all seven of Jesse's sons who had come to the feast. So the text continues as follows. This is verse 11. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we'll not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. This is an interesting description of David from beginning to end. First, he was the youngest son of eight boys, so he was of little stature in his family. His father said as much to Samuel when he called him the youngest. The Hebrew word translated youngest is the word katan. And katan refers to smallness, sometimes to youth, certainly, but metaphorically it usually means unimportant or insignificant. He's katan, he's of no significance. In essence, Jesse was telling Samuel that he had not invited David to come because he was not important enough to be invited to such an occasion. Furthermore, David has been described as ruddy, which is the Hebrew word for red. It may refer to the color of his hair or of his skin, but it's also a callback to the description of Esau in Genesis, who, like David, was a person who spent a lot of time out of doors. So it probably refers to him being darkly tanned. Ruddy. The phrase had beautiful eyes is interesting. You notice in the version that our liturgist read, uh, it was a little cleaned up, but this is literally what it says beautiful eyes. It's a unique description of David. The word beautiful is used on other occasions. It's used of Joseph in the story of Genesis, it'll be used later of David's son Absalom. But beautiful eyes is unique of David. It has something to do with an inviting look. You looked at him and you couldn't turn away, like he's somehow welcoming. The word translated handsome is simply the Hebrew word for good, tov. Some of you have heard the mazel tov, right? Tov just means good. And it probably refers to more than David's physical appearance. As I read the text, this is what I think they're saying about David as he arrives. David's been described as socially insignificant, darkly tanned, which means he spends a lot of time outside, had a welcoming gaze, and was an overall agreeable young person. In terms of kingliness, Saul had been of the expected stature and social position, but he was from an unexpected tribe. David, on the other hand, had been from an expected tribe. Judah was certainly would be a top contender for king. But he was not of the expected stature or social position. During our discussion of God's choosing of Saul, I had suggested that Saul's personal meekness and humility, along with the smallness of his tribe, may have been part of why God chose him. The choice of David was similar, but different but still a reflection of what Jesus said throughout his ministry, right? The first will be last, and the last will be first. In each of their cases, David and Saul both fit the bill for that. But let's first consider the differences between them. The choice of the tribe of Benjamin was a compassionate choice. They had been a judged tribe, nearly wiped out just prior to Saul's choosing. And so it's a compassionate choice for God to choose them. The choice of Judah was different. It was an act of loyalty on God's behalf. 
Long ago, at the close of Genesis, Jacob had prophesied the following about the tribe of Judah. This comes from Genesis chapter 49. It says, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches down. He stretches out like a lion, like a lioness. Who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and the obedience of the peoples is his. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washes his garments in wine and his robe in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Jacob had said that a thousand years before. In the choosing of David, God fulfilled this prophecy of Jacob. He chose one from the line of Judah to bear the scepter. He chose one who would prove to be courageous and powerful, not unlike a lion. And he chose one who was dark in complexion, beautiful and attractive, right? This is all the prophecy that Jacob had spoken about Judah. And of course, the flesh of Jesus himself would come from the line of David. It's not hard to see Jesus' eventual triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the donkey as a fulfillment of this prophecy of Jacob as well. So this is how David was different than Saul. But how was he similar? David was, as the Hebrew says, katan. He was insignificant. Saul was a significant man from an insignificant tribe. David was an insignificant boy from a significant tribe. Saul's tribe had been last, and by choosing Saul as king, God had made it first. David himself was last in his family, but in anointing him, God had made him first over the tribes of Israel. How did Jesus know that in God's kingdom, the first would be last and the last would be first? Well, we could take the shortcut and say he was God. How would he not know that? But he also didn't need to be God to know that. You could simply read the scriptures and see it was true. And one final detail that is both similar and dissimilar about these two men at the same time. The scriptures say, And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Now the Spirit of the Lord came on Saul too, but only twice. But we've been told in this passage that the Spirit of the Lord remained on David, was with him his whole life. What does the selection of David tell us about God? Well, the text of Samuel has reminded us, this is 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, that the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And I always wonder how contemporary people hear that, since we have such a very specific use of the word heart. Especially, it's too close to Valentine's Day to get this thing straight from a biblical perspective. There's too much of that heart in our hearing, I think. In the Hebrew of the First Testament, the word heart refers to the place where the intellect and the emotions meet. So in a Hebraic way of understanding, your emotions are in your body, your mind is in your head, and the heart are where the two come together to make decisions. To say that God looks on the heart in the First Testament is to say that God looks to the way in which a person makes decisions, in which they balance the emotions and the intellect to come to a decision on how to act. So does this mean that David, at his young age, had already proved himself to be a person of wisdom and solid decision-making that honored God? Probably not. He was young. David was still young, and he was still insignificant. 
In choosing David, God did not choose a fully formed adult. That may be part of the reason he chose him so young. Instead, God chose a young man who was still developing into the adult that he would become. I think the strongest evidence of this is revealed in Jesse's failure to invite him to the meal, to eat with Samuel. To my reading, this suggests that David was not yet 13 years of age, and therefore he wasn't considered yet part of the adult community of Israel with covenantal responsibilities. So he wouldn't have been invited to a meal. He hadn't even been probably to the tabernacle to make his first sacrifice yet. Today it's called bar mitzvah, to become a son of the law at 12 or 13 years old. David probably had not attained that age. God had made a similar choice in choosing a child with Samuel when God spoke to him when he too was just a young boy. I think the essence of God's choice is not that he was looking for someone who already had a heart like God's, but he was looking for someone that God could lead into having a heart like God's, and that meant he had to start with a child. The book of Proverbs provides more evidence of this in that it discusses four broad categories of fools. Three of them are presented as very difficult to instruct. We won't get into them, but believe me, you don't want to be one of them. The wisdom teachers are taught to avoid them. But one category of fool is presented positively in the book of Proverbs. As the type of fool a wisdom teacher should be eager to disciple. And that type of fool is described by the Hebrew word peti. And it refers to a simpleton, to someone who's ignorant. The book of Proverbs begins with these verses. This is Proverbs chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for learning about wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for gaining instruction in wise dealing, righteousness, justice, and equity, to teach shrewdness to the simple. That's the word petit, to the ignorant. The word translated simple is petit. This is also that to which Jesus was referring in Luke chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. People were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they sternly ordered them not to do it. But Jesus called for them and said, Let the little children come to me and do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. In this passage, Jesus was not presenting children as innocent or as trusting or as unsophisticated in their thinking. Jesus was presenting children as types of David, as types of Samuel. In Jesus' society, children were katan, they were insignificant. However, children were also, and this is their strength, eager to learn, full of questions and still developing. Jesus' teaching in Luke was similar to God's choice of young David. The kingdom of heaven must be received as a little child, as one who is not yet fully formed. It has to be received humbly, full of questions. Why? 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 Right? That's the child's mantra, and that is what Jesus values. Eager to learn, and still moldable by what they learn, not resistant to change. God's concern in 1 Samuel was that Israel's king have a heart after God's own heart. That is, that the king would make decisions in the way God makes decisions, balancing the law, compassion, justice, and mercy well. In the choosing of Saul, God had chosen an adult, 
who was resistant to changing. He didn't want to be taught. In the choosing both of Samuel and of David, God chose people who were still learning, who were still developing, still open to correction and still open to redirection. God wanted a leader who was a learner, who was correctable, who was redirectable, who was willing to be discipled. This is why Jesus said, if you don't receive the kingdom like a little child, you cannot enter it. So as he had done with Samuel, God sent his spirit upon David as an insignificant youth, and God began to disciple him from childhood. As I reflect on this story, two realities of God stand out, at least to me. First, if we are to be people after God's heart, who make decisions similar to the way God makes decisions, we have to come to God as young children, as a child might come to a parent, full of questions, eager to learn, able to be corrected, however hard, and able to be redirected. We can't come knowing already what we're asking about. Second, we can trust God to fulfill the words of his prophets and apostles in his time. Maybe this is a bit of a deep pull, but in the choosing of David, God fulfilled the words of Jacob spoken nearly a thousand years earlier. That's a long time to wait for a prophecy to be fulfilled. But it was eventually fulfilled. Part of what that says to me is that even if God's promises seem a long time in coming, God is faithful to fulfill what he's given his prophets to speak. So we can trust the scriptures to be proven true in the end, even if for a thousand years they look to be in error. Or perhaps Jacob looked to have overspoken. I wonder how the people responded when Saul was chosen as king, if they even remembered Jacob's words, because Jacob said nothing about the tribe of Benjamin leading Israel. He said nothing about that. So they must have thought, wow, the old man was old. <laughs> Maybe he didn't know what he was talking about. But eventually God's word is fulfilled if we can hang in there, and it will be for you too. May those who have ears to hear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Amen.